Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for another restful episode of True Stories to Help You Fall Asleep. I know that usually I would say true scary stories to fall asleep, and in this scenario, I guess scary would also be accurate. However, today is a little bit different, because today you could help solve a mystery. Today we're going to be talking about unresolved mysteries. So, perhaps you could help solve it, or perhaps you could just lay back, relax, and enjoy these true unsolved mysteries. I do want to say that today we've got a very, very special guest on this channel. The first story is going to be read by Inner Scare Wifey. I hope you guys enjoy it. So, without further ado, lay back, relax, and enjoy these true unsolved mysteries also before we get into this stories i do want to give a very very strong content warning viewer discretion is heavily advised for this episode because some of these unresolved mysteries deal with sexual crimes murders and other things that may be unsuitable for some audiences so please be aware viewer discretion is strongly advised. Holly Bartlett a young blind woman who got into a taxi after a night with friends and was found under a bridge. What really happened to her? In March 2010, Holly Bartlett was a 31-year-old resident of Halifax, Canada. She recently started a job as a researcher for the province while working to complete her graduate program at Dalhousie University. Holly also had been legally blind since the age of 13 and used a white cane to get around. The mobility specialist who taught her said she had the best skills of any student he had ever worked with and had an excellent sense of direction. Despite a busy schedule and personal challenges, she led an active social life with many close friends and recently had been spending most evenings at her parents' house, as her father was battling lung cancer. The evening of March 26th, Holly joined some friends for dinner and drinks at the year-end party at the university club. Friends said Holly was her usual bubbly self and only had a few drinks and was not intoxicated. Just before midnight, one of Holly's friends helped her to a waiting taxi to bring her back home. The next morning, a group of ironworkers discovered Holly lying under the Mackay Bridge, a towering suspension bridge situated just 300 meters from her home. She was unconscious, cold, and barely breathing. Holly was rushed to the hospital. There, doctors discovered her body temperature was dangerously low at 23 degrees. She had a broken leg and several broken ribs. There were also bruises on her face, cuts on her hands and feet. Holly Bartlett was pronounced dead at 10.45 the following morning. Her cause of death was hypothermia and blunt force trauma. Within 24 hours, local authorities determined her death to have been an accident. That Holly had become disoriented and stumbled off the edge of a 10-meter tall concrete abutment that stands at the edge of the bridge. Police said her white cane was nowhere to be found. Holly's family and friends questioned the ruling, citing her excellent sense of direction and very strong white cane skills. Even if she were intoxicated and disoriented, they say, Holly would not have walked aimlessly. 
She would have known that doing so would get her even more lost. More than likely, she would have asked someone for help or stayed in the small area until she found her bearings. To get to the spot where she was found, she would have had to walk 300 meters away from her apartment, crawl under a fence, and up a cement structure beneath the McKay Bridge. All of this instead of exiting a taxi and walking into her home. Several items from her purse, her wallet, phone, lip gloss, and some change, were found not in the vicinity of Holly's body, but in the parking lot of her apartment building some 300 meters away. The items were spread across the parking lot as if they had been thrown from a passing car. Meanwhile, Holly's purse was with her when she was found. And although police claimed to have thoroughly searched the area where she was found for evidence, a group of Holly's friends located her white cane in the same area after the police's search concluded. But what's even more alarming is the omission that came from her taxi driver and how his story changed. Taxi driver Paul Frazier was the last person to see Holly Bartlett alive and stated he dropped her off at the building only to see her walk away in the opposite direction. At the time, he told authorities that Holly had been very drunk. But during an interview with the Fifth Estate in 2014, he claimed that Holly had only said one word during the entire ride, and when she got out, she didn't seem that drunk. Paul had also admitted to stealing money from Holly by giving her the wrong change, but during the 2014 interview, he denied doing this. While Paul dropped Holly off, there had been a bus parked near her building. The security cameras on the bus caught his taxi returning to the building after she had already gotten out. He did not mention this to authorities at the time. When asked about it later on, he claimed that he had seen her trip and fall. Though he hadn't stopped at first, he felt guilty and decided to go back. However, Paul says she was already dead, so he fled the scene. This was added just a few months ago to the Doe Network. An unidentified male, estimated to be 16 to 18 years old, hung himself from a tree in Louisiana in 1975. He left a long, very verbose, unaliving self-note to his parents, found in a jar besides the tree. It's very sad, but also very interesting, and it begs a lot of questions. Here are the excerpts from the website. Quote, Mom and Dad. You have provided me excellent advantages and privileges and experiences. I am extremely grateful for all of your sacrifices, time, and support. I am now repaying you with an arrogant act. In this light, I do see it as criminal. I can only hope that you see that it was me who caused it. I never did develop into a real person, and I cannot tolerate the false and empty existence I have created. It's best if I cease to live, quietly, then risk that later I will break and shatter by violence or linger years under care. I implore you to see a psychiatrist in order that you might understand my death and my life. Ask thoroughly about what I was, and you will see that it is not tragic that I am gone, but more natural than if I continued. I was born with a definite pervasive melancholy. What frustrated me most in the last year was that I had built no ties with family or friends. There was nothing of lasting worth and value. I led a detached existence, and I was a parody of a person, literally and figuratively. I didn't tell jokes. I was a joke. I am a bomb of frustration and should never marry or have children. It is safest to diffuse the bomb harmlessly now. 
I do not want to bother with being a reformed and cured person limping through life. I am this self-centered. I am no longer interested in the world and know that it is not interested in me. When you stop growing, you're dead. I stopped growing long ago. End quote. He adds an aside addressed to the authorities. Quote, you are bound to preserve domestic peace and order. If you pursue who I was and spend hundreds of dollars, you will accomplish little. There are no legal consequences of my death or any kind of entanglements. All that can happen is that you will shatter the domestic peace and order of two innocent lives. Do not deprive them of the hope that their missing son will return. Let me be. Let it be. As if I wasn't ever here. Simply cremate me as John Doe. End quote. The most intriguing part about all this for me is when he talks about being a, quote, bomb of frustration, that it was, quote, safest to diffuse by ending his life. One can't help but wonder exactly what he seemed to know that he would do if he continued in life. Sixteen-year-old Shannon Amok had a very difficult life, leading up to when she ran away in May of 1992. Shannon was born to a young mother in March of 1976 as the result of an S.A. She lived with her mother in Phoenix, Arizona until she was three years old before her mother recognized that she was unable to care for young Shannon, giving her to CPS. Shortly after, Shannon was adopted out to a family in Scottsdale, where she remained until she was 12 years old. However, this family sent her back to CPS, claiming that her behavioral issues were too much to bear. This left Shannon in a position where she was hopping from group home to group home and occasionally being placed with a foster family, never finding a place to call her own. Feeling alone and abandoned, Shannon would run away from these group homes numerous times, 40 times to be exact. Police recalled that they had contact with Shannon every week from 1989 to 1981, returning her back to these facilities. When Shannon was 10 years old, she was interviewed by a psychologist due to her chronic running away. This psychologist asked Shannon a rather startling question during the interview. What would she want on her tombstone if she were to die due to the danger of her running off? She had a heartbreaking answer for him, stating that she would want her tombstone to be blank because no one cared for her when she was alive. So why would anyone care when she was dead? Sadly, Shannon would run away for the final time in the spring of 1992. On May 27, 1992, a man was riding his ATV in the area of 20th Street and Deer Valley Road, in a remote area of desert north of the Central Arizona Project Canal that was often used to dump trash. Some sources suggest that this man was part of a search party looking for the body of another missing girl, with a strong possibility of being that of Brandy Meyer, who disappeared two days prior. This man spotted a hand sticking out underneath a piece of plywood, discovering the body of a teenage girl. Upon calling the police, the body was removed and examined. The girl had died from strangulation and had been lying in that location for up to eight weeks. 
unknown who the body belonged to. They made composite sketches and circulated photos of her clothing, but she was not identified, and subsequently buried in a potter's field at the Twin Buttes Cemetery in Tempe, Arizona. It's unclear if Shannon was considered to be the Jane Doe at any point early on, but it seems unlikely, as she was never reported missing by the group home that she had run away from. However, 20 years later, Jane Doe was positively identified as Shannon Amick, when her biological mother gave a DNA sample to detectives that matched the unidentified body in 1992. Investigators stated that they got very lucky that the biological mother was still residing in the Phoenix Valley by that point and were able to make a positive connection. Suspects. There was only one person to be considered a possible suspect in the murder of Shannon and also the presumed killer of Brandy Meyer, Brian Miller, also known as the Canal Killer. Brian Miller was an eccentric character who owned a unique-looking truck with Zombie Hunter painted on it in large letters, often spotted around Phoenix. He frequently wore elaborate costumes, taking pictures with people around town, as well as some local police officers, all before he was eventually charged with murder. Brian was apprehended in January of 2015 when he offered a woman a ride home and began to stab her repeatedly in his car. This woman was able to flee and call for help, where Brian was arrested and his DNA entered into the national database. His DNA hit on two unsolved murders in the Phoenix Valley from the early 1990s, that of Angela Brasso and Melanie Bernas. Both women had disappeared while riding their bikes along the canal, and both women's bodies were discovered floating in the canal. Angela's head was found floating in the canal 11 days after her body was discovered, as it had been removed post-mortem. Brian is also suspected of killing 13-year-old Brandy Meyer, who left her home in 1992 to collect signatures for a bookathon being held by her elementary school. Brandy was last seen knocking on a door two homes down from Brian's, and his ex-wife later told authorities that he had confessed to her that he had killed a young girl who knocked on his door in 1992. He claimed that she knocked, and when he opened it, he grabbed her without hesitation, pulling her inside and stabbing her to death. He then dismembered her body before dumping it at a local recycling center. Brandy's body was never found, and Brian was never charged for her murder. His trial for the murders of Melanie and Angela began last month, in October of 2022. Closing. Shannon was exhumed from the Potter's Field in Tempe and reburied at Sunset West Cemetery in El Mirage, Arizona. She has a tombstone there, often decorated with flowers, and it's not blank. It bears her name, Shannon Michelle Amick, with her date of birth, her date her body was found, and an inscription that says, I once was lost, but now I am found. Dr. No is the nickname given to a suspected American serial killer thought to be responsible for the murders of at least nine women and girls in Ohio between 1981 and 2004. As victims, he primarily chose prostitutes, working in parking lots and truck stops located alongside Interstate 71. There are suspicions that he committed three similar killings in New York, Illinois, and Pennsylvania 
between 1986 and 1988. Some of the victims were prostitutes at the Union 76 truck stop in Austintown, east of Akron and west of Youngstown, which is the largest in Ohio, leading the investigators to suspect the serial killer was a truck driver. Most victims were found without underwear and shoes. The killings began in 1981, when the body of a young woman was found in Miami County, Ohio, on April 24th. After a forensic examination, it was determined that the victim died from strangulation, having received a head injury beforehand. At the time of her discovery, no personal belongings or documents were found, making her identification difficult. She was well-groomed, and there was no evidence of S.A. Investigators did not characterize her as a prostitute. She was nicknamed Buckskin Girl from a tasseled buckskin poncho she was wearing. In 2018, the victim was finally identified as Marcia King. The next victim was 25-year-old Marcia Matthews, who was found, beaten but barely alive, on June 16, 1985, by a trucker one mile away from the Union 76 truck stop. She died two and a half days later from a traumatic brain injury, sustained after a beating with a blunt object. On July 20, 1986, the body of a 23-year-old prostitute, Shirley Dean Taylor, was discovered, who was also beaten and strangled to death. Before her disappearance, she was seen at the Union 76 truck stop, where, according to witness reports, she went to meet a regular client named Dr. No, whose identity was never established. Her body was discovered a few miles from the place of her disappearance, with her underwear and shoes missing. In December 1986, 18-year-old prostitute April Barnett also went missing from the Union 76 truck stop, with her body found only a few days later, 70 miles from Austintown. As with previous cases, the victim was beaten and strangled to death, with some of her clothes missing as well. A few days after, 28-year-old prostitute Jill Allen was found murdered in Illinois near Interstate 70. Despite the fact that she had been found in another state, she was also deemed a victim of the same serial killer due to the modus operandi. Allen had also been beaten and asphyxiated, with strangulation marks found on her neck. Her shoes, bra, and underwear were never found. The next victim was 27-year-old Anne Marie Patterson, who went missing on February 7, 1987, from the Union 76 Austin Town. Her semi-decomposed body was found 40 days later, 250 miles away from Austin Town near Cincinnati. A week before the disappearance, Patterson had been arrested by the police. At the police station, she gave information about a murder suspect and described his car. During the investigation, law enforcement agencies discovered that Patterson had made an appointment via CB radio with the client named Dr. No, whom she characterized extremely negatively, and then disappeared. From this, the police and later the media used the nickname for the unidentified criminal. On August 10th of 1987, another victim's body was found in Inglewood. The victim's jeans and underwear were at her ankles, while the upper parts of her clothing were missing. According to the nature of grass depressions and tire tracks located at the scene, forensic experts determined that the killer threw the victim's corpse out of his car. An autopsy revealed that the victim was a young woman, aged 20 to 25, and had died from strangulation. Despite the abundance of tattoos on her body, as well as jewelry the offender had not stolen, she remained unidentified until 2010. The victim was identified as Paula Beverly Davis, 21, after relatives recognized her tattoos pictured from her listing in the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System. 
Although she was included on the task force related to the murders formed in 1991, additional theories exist suggesting a drug dealer's retaliation, an unknown woman last seen in her company, or an unrelated serial killer. On November 22, 1987, the body of 19-year-old LaMonica Cole was discovered at a truck stop in Breezewood, Pennsylvania. Despite the fact that the truck stop was located on another interstate, Cole was included as a potential victim because she had died from strangulation, was a native of Ohio, and some of her things had been recovered, while others not. During the investigation, LaMonica's pimp, 24-year-old Derek Mims, told police that the alleged killer with whom Cole left on the day of her disappearance was traveling in a blue semi-trailer truck with white stripes. 31-year-old Terry Rourke was murdered on March 29, 1988 in New York. Her body found on one of the bridges passing through the Mohawk River. The medical examiner found that the woman died from a traumatic brain injury that occurred during a beating with a blunt object several hours before the discovery of her body. Some of Rourke's clothing, including underwear and shoes, were never found, leading investigators to include her in the list of potential victims of Dr. No. On April 19, 1990, another female's body was found near a truck stop on the I-70. Most of her clothes were missing, though her underwear remained. An autopsy concluded that she had died from a TBI, resulting from a beating, and had sexual intercourse 12 to 24 hours before her death. With these conclusions, the investigators suggested that the victim was a prostitute and had fallen victim to the serial killer. Despite multiple attempts to identify her, she remained unidentified with the placeholder name Jane Doe 2 until her identification as Patrice Anita Corley in 2017. The Investigation During the course of the investigation, the police interviewed hundreds of prostitutes, pimps, service station employees, and truck drivers in an attempt to find witnesses and identify the offender. According to the witnesses, the killer appeared to be a tall, large man with fair skin and dark hair, aged 25 to 40, wore glasses, and talked with an accent matching that of somebody from the northeastern states. The vehicle he was driving was described as a 1984 silver truck with a wind blocker and red hood. The Ohio State Police Department and volunteers from various civil society organizations posted over 4,000 photographs of the victims and an identinot of the offender at 130 truck stops and service stations across the state and 1,350 truck stops in nine other states through which interstate motorways where the serial killer would ride through, offering $10,000 for information about him. As a result, five people were detained, who at different times were nicknamed Dr. No, but subsequently no charges were filed against any of them, and their names were never disclosed to the public. On most of the corpses, biological traces were discovered that, according to investigators, came from the perpetrator. To establish if the specimens had the same affiliation, a forensic examination was carried out, which gave mixed results, due to the fact that all of the victims had engaged in prostitution during life and authorities started questioning whether the deaths were actually related. Since no other incriminating evidence was found at the crime scene, such as fingerprints, hair samples, and pieces of clothing, the investigation to this day hasn't established the killer's identity. The Suspect List In April 1991, a resident of Lake County, Ohio, 36-year-old Alvin Wilson became a suspect. 
Wilson, who worked as a trucker and owned two tractors, was among those who hair samples matched those found on some of the victims. Credit card receipts and other evidence indicated his possible responsibility for the Ohio murders. In 1990, he was arrested on charges of assault and attempted murder of a woman in October of 1989. After his arrest, the girl contacted police, stating that in 1986, Wilson had picked her up in Akron after paying for her services and had beat and attempted to strangle her afterwards. Wilson was tested for any involvement, but the results were inconclusive. That same year, a long-haul truck driver named John Foddenberry was arrested for several murders committed across four states. He was briefly considered a suspect in the killings, but was later ruled out as his modus operandi and victim profile were too different. In June of 1994, a 36-year-old truck driver from Ohio, James Robert Cruz Jr., was convicted in the March 1993 murder of 17-year-old Don Marie Birnbaum in Center County, Pennsylvania, whose body was found along I-80. The girl's body was discovered a few days after her death. Since most of her clothes were missing, Cruz was considered a possible suspect in the Ohio killings. He was tested, but subsequently no charges were filed against him concerning the other murders. In 1995, 28-year-old Sean Patrick Gobley, a trucker from North Carolina who had admitted to killing two prostitutes in Tennessee in April of that year, was among the suspects for the murder of a North Carolina woman in early 1995. As a trucker, Gobley traveled to several dozen states across the country, where cases of disappearance and murders of prostitutes along interstate highways were recorded. Following his arrest, Gobley was investigated for murders in at least 10 states. Nevertheless, he was cleared of suspicion of being the elusive Dr. No, since at the time of the first murder in 1981, he was still in high school, and in the mid-1980s when the majority of the killings took place, he was serving in the army and was stationed outside of Ohio. In November 2005, on the basis of DNA profiling, authorities arrested 46-year-old Delmas Colvin, a truck driver who killed five prostitutes in Toledo. Colvin later admitted to killing at least two others in New Jersey, but vehemently denied any involvement in the Dr. No murders during the 1980s. In early 2019, 49-year-old Samuel Legg was arrested in Arizona. Using DNA profiling, law enforcement agencies were able to prove his guilt in four murders in Ohio and Illinois, the first of which he committed at age 20 in 1989. His initial arrest was due to a match for an unsolved 1997 assault of a minor in Medina County, Ohio, where he was extradited to stand trial. In the fall of 1990, Legg was a suspected in the murder of his stepdaughter, 14-year-old Angela Hicks in El Ria. But, as there was not enough evidence, he was not charged. A college student leaves for campus one morning. The next day, his abandoned vehicle is discovered 120 miles away, with the keys still in the ignition. What happened to Matthew Pendergrast? Background. Matthew David Pendergrast was born on January 4, 1977, to parents Jeff, a prominent plastic surgeon, and Mary Ellen. He grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, 
but eventually moved away to Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, a school which both of his parents agreed was a great fit for him. Described by his friends and family as unselfish, kind, and caring, Matthew had spent the previous two summers volunteering at an orphanage in the Dominican Republic and planned to dedicate his life to nonprofit work following his college graduation. Disappearance. Just two weeks shy of his college graduation, Matthew got up early on December 1st, 2000, and according to the woman from whom he rented a room five minutes from campus, headed out at approximately 7.30 to 8 that morning. He was scheduled to attend his Spanish class at 9 a.m. As the hours went by with no sign of Matthew, his friends became concerned and started calling him. However, these calls went unanswered. Matthew Pendergrass would never be seen or heard from again. The following day, his parents received a troubling call, informing them that their son's 1998 Toyota 4Runner SUV had been discovered by hunters near Bayou Meto in Lonoke County, Arkansas, roughly 120 miles from Memphis. The vehicle was found unlocked with the keys still in the ignition. The area was soon searched by authorities, turning up a small, neatly folded stack of Matthew's clothes, including a pair of jeans, which were wet from the knees down. His wallet, which contained $46, credit cards, family photos, and his driver's license, and a journal. This journal was full of bits of poetry, philosophical musings on the nature of life and death, talk of a desire for immortality, walking into water and becoming one with nature again, as well as references to the Silver Elves, the latter of which are a group of people who refer to themselves by the name and have their own website on which they describe themselves as a family of elves who have been living and sharing the elven way since 1975. Among other things, their website speaks of the elven tree of life eternal and the spiritual path to self-discovery and immortality. What did any of this mean? And what had compelled Matthew to drive over a 100 miles to a location he'd never been to before? Neither his friends and family nor the authorities had any idea. A two-day search was conducted, which included divers' equipment with sonar, search dogs, a boat, and a helicopter. The search dogs picked up Matthew's scent from his clothing. However, they could find no trace of his scent at any other point from the vehicle to the stack of clothing. Ultimately, the two-day search failed to turn up a body or any other clues as to what may have happened to the missing 23-year-old college student. Matthew's mental state leading up to his disappearance. While we can never truly know what's going on in another person's mind, Matthew's friends and family felt certain that he was happy and that he would not have committed unaliving himself. He had spoken to a friend in Georgia on the phone the previous evening, and this friend described Matthew as having been very upbeat. This was also the assessment of his parents, who had just spent time with him over the Thanksgiving holiday and had found him to be in good spirits. Also, it's important to note that no evidence of drug abuse or involvement in illegal activity of any kind has ever been found. Was the scene staged? Matthew's mother expressed skepticism that her son would have neatly folded and stacked his clothes that way, stating, Our son was not the neatest soul in the world. His room had also been found in disarray, which she described as being typical for him. It was also the opinion of Jim Calusa, a Lone Oak County Sheriff's investigator, and one of the people who had worked this case that the scene had been staged. Jeff and Mary Ellen hired a private investigator five months after their son went missing. This is what he had to say on the subject. You peel back that one layer, and that's all there is. 
He also spoke of the somewhat odd condition in which Matthew's jeans had been discovered. They were wet up to the knees, yet the drainage ditch between where his vehicle was found and where his clothes were laid was filled with water that would have come up much higher on Matt than his knees, probably up over his head. I think it was all staged. Although the fact that he left an hour earlier than he had to that day is a detail that even his parents found to be strange behavior for him, according to Mary Ellen, Matt never got up earlier than he had to, so why did he on this day? Theories. Accidental death. Unaliving himself. And foul play. What do you think? Juan Leon Loreles was the youngest of nine children and was born on January 3, 1966. He was shy, but a gentle giant with an even bigger heart. He would help care for his aging parents and was incredibly close with his niece, Arlene. He loved to spend time with his family. Leon loved to dance and cook. He grew up in the small, Christian conservative town of Brownswood, Texas. Leon was working for a local grocery store chain, Kroger's. He worked the overnight shift but was known to socialize with co-workers. His caring nature even extended beyond family as Leon was known to buy his co-workers birthday or holiday gifts. He always knew how to show the people that he cared about that they mattered. Days before the murder, on May 3, 1996, Leon was at the Blockbuster parking lot located across the street from Kroger. His cousin noticed Leon in his 1988 Black Ford Thunderbird and the two get to chatting. Leon tells his cousin that he was waiting because a highway patrolman threatened to kill him if he ever saw him with his daughter. Since Leon was gay and not officially out of the closet to his conservative Catholic family, it's likely that Leon was actually spotted with a male. On May 8, 1996, Leon confided in a co-worker that someone was harassing and threatening him. Leon did not share who it was or the extent of the threat. The next day, Leon shared with his sister that Billy and William Gatlin were angry with him and harassing him, but didn't know why. When he was murdered, around 11.30 p.m. on May 9, 1996, Leon left his home and drove the six-mile distance to start his overnight shift at Kroger. Leon was living with his brother George. He arrived early and was socializing with the staff who were leaving their shifts. By 11.50 p.m., Leon goes to the Kroger parking lot and parks next to a vehicle. By 12.01 a.m., his co-workers realized that he had not come in for his shift, which was unlike him. When they went to the parking lot to check, his car was gone. Immediately, the staff called George, who retraced Leon's known route to and from work in hopes that maybe Leon had some car trouble. But George did not find Leon, but noticed the emergency vehicles heading towards a local rifle range. Authorities would later learn that at 12.15 a.m., two cars were seen driving along the shoulder of Farm Road, 2126. By 12.27 a.m., a 911 call was placed by a driver who was en route to the Brownwood Medical Center. Three minutes later, a second 911 call is made by another passerby. An unknown witness would also tell police that they saw a late 1970s Ford model truck with tinted windows, chrome mirror, flatbed or no bed, 
and Gooseneck trailer hitch. During this time, Leon's co-worker also calls 911 to see if any incidents happen in the local vicinity. She was informed about a bad wreck at the gun range, but had no idea that Leon was involved. Initially, when the fire department arrives on the scene, they're responding to a call of a car fire. It's then that they discover Leon's body near his car. Sometime in the early morning hours of May 10, 1996, Leon was shot execution-style in the back of the head. It is believed that the suspect stood approximately six feet in front of Leon's car. The car is then towed from the scene before local journalists could photograph the area. According to the police, everything was done by the book. Where the case stands today. Throughout the years, police followed some new leads and despite a new person of interest, it is believed that the individual may have committed unaliving themselves in 2014. In 2020, the case is reopened, but there are still many questions surrounding it. If you have any information on the unsolved murder of Juan Leon Lorales, please contact the Brown County Sheriff's Office at 325-646-5510. Twenty-one-month-old Ben Needham was staying with his family on the Greek island of Kaos, where his maternal grandparents had a home in the village of Iraklis near Kaos Town. He went missing on the 24th of July, 1991. On the day of his disappearance, Ben had been left in the care of his grandparents, Eddie and Christine Needham, while his mother went to work at a local hotel. Ben had been coming in and out of a farmhouse the family were renovating when, at approximately 2.30 p.m., the adults realized that he disappeared. The family first searched the area for Ben, assuming he had wandered off or that the boy's teenage uncle Stephen had taken him on his moped. When no trace of the boy was found, the police were notified. They initially questioned the Needhams, viewing them as suspects, which delayed notification of airports and docks. Over the following 11 days, searches of the area were carried out by Hellenic police, Hellenic army, and fire brigade personnel. Nicholas Dakaras, the island chief of police, said, We now believe we have searched every possible part of the area, and the boy is not there. It leaves us with a great mystery. We have no theories. We have no solutions. Following a request from the UK Prime Minister John Major, the Hellenic Army undertook further searches of the island in January of 1993. There have been multiple sightings of boys matching Ben's physical appearance, but no leads. Theories include abduction, kidnapping, murder, and an accident. In May 1979, 23-year-old Verna James and her unborn child were murdered inside of Verna's South Bend, Indiana apartment while her two children slept upstairs. Sadly, Verna's case remains unsolved. In the early morning hours of May 10, 1979, South Bend, Indiana police were dispatched to the home of 23-year-old mother of two, 
Verna Jean James. The caller identified himself as 26-year-old Charles Howell, Verna's ex-husband. According to Charles, after failing to make contact with Verna by phone, he traveled to her apartment to check on her and the kids. After knocking loudly several times and receiving no response, Charles made the decision to forcibly enter Verna's home. After several kicks, the apartment's front door swung open, allowing Charles to enter. Inside, he found Verna lying on the living room floor, her lifeless body riddled with stab wounds. After finding the children sleeping soundly upstairs, Charles summoned the police. Verna was found lying on her living room floor, dressed in her nightclothes. She had been stabbed multiple times in the chest, one of which had penetrated her heart. She had not been essayed. It was also determined that Verna was between six and a half and eight and a half months pregnant with her third child, a daughter. Sources vary on exactly how far along Verna was in the pregnancy. Tragically, despite efforts to save her, Verna's unborn baby passed as well. Although nothing appeared to be missing from the home, investigators found evidence a struggle had ensued in the living room. After questioning neighbors and learning about a pair of prowlers that had been spotted running from the scene on the night of Verna's murder, detectives theorized it was possible one person may have served as a lookout, while the other carried out the attack on Verna after she answered a knock at the door. Unfortunately, the two possible suspects were never located. Five days after Verna's murder, an important piece of evidence finally presented itself. A homicide investigator searching for clues discovered a discarded knife near Verna's home. A large steak knife found covered in blood was found near the bridge located next to Memorial Park, directly across the street from Verna's apartment. Sadly, despite the discovery of the murder weapon, no arrests were ever made, and a motive for Verna's murder was never established. Verna was laid to rest in South Bend's Highland Cemetery, alongside her unborn daughter. Her case remains unsolved. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. The California Highway Patrol was called to the scene of a single car accident in Ranch Santa Fe, an exclusive suburb north of San Diego. A 2008 Porsche had apparently run off a curving road in this residential neighborhood. There was moderate damage to the front of the vehicle, but no sign of the driver. The damage was not inconsistent with the driver walking away uninjured, so the vehicle was towed away. The next morning, at a home approximately 100 yards from an accident scene, a homeowner found a dead body on his driveway. The San Diego County Sheriff's arrived, and the body was identified as 53-year-old Robert Stonebreaker, a local veterinarian. The homeowner recognized the victim as his veterinarian, but had no other relationship with him. The house was surrounded by a fence that could have been climbed by anyone reasonably fit, but it seemed unlikely that someone seriously injured in an auto accident would attempt to climb it. There were no nearby houses without fences the victim could have gone to. 
The medical examiner determined that the cause of death was a blow to the head, but the injury was not consistent with the collision on a vehicle. Furthermore, there was a great deal of blood surrounding the body, but none in the vehicle or along the route the driver would have taken. The conclusion was that the victim had died by homicide at or near where the body was found. It appeared that after the wreck, Stonebreaker was followed by someone who had caught up with him after climbing the fence and killed him. That person may have been the person chasing him in a different vehicle. The area where this all occurred was nowhere near where Stonebreaker lived or had any obvious reason for being there. There was no significant forensic evidence at the scene or in his car. Stonebreaker was a veterinarian with a practice in the general area. He also ran a nonprofit shelter for pet birds. He had built his practice over the last 26 years and was quite successful. He appears to have had a good reputation in the community and was not known to be involved in any sketchy activity. There was no apparent reason anyone would want to kill him. Law enforcement has considered this a high-profile case that is still being actively investigated, but very little information has been released to the public. The autopsy and details of the head injury have not been released. No suspects have been named, but the investigators have refused to rule out his wife as a suspect. This caused her difficulties collecting on the $3 million life insurance and has created a certain amount of suspicion in the community. Still, there has been no evidence made public that points to her. This does seem like a very strange crime, particularly the assumption that both he and his attacker had to climb a fence. There is speculation that this may have been road rage or perhaps someone following him to rob him or kill him for some unknown reason. It would be very unusual for a hired hitman to chase his target in a vehicle. We do not know exactly what the fence was like, and we didn't know much about the head injuries. Is it possible that he climbed the fence to seek assistance from the homeowner and fell, injuring his head? Jenkins County Jane Doe Background Teenager or young adult found murdered on February 14, 1988. She is thought to have been asphyxiated. A man, now deceased, allegedly confessed to her murder but was never charged. He never gave her name. Discovery A man searching for cans initially discovered the victim's body while his companion waited in his vehicle. They later brought a friend to the scene and alerted police. At least one other person had noticed a foul odor coming from the dumpster, but did not investigate. The victim had been placed inside a duffel-style suitcase after being wrapped in bedding material and tape. Her feet had been bound. It has been suggested that the bedding could have originated from her residence or a place of employment. The condition of her body greatly impacted the accuracy of the original reconstruction. GBI officials state that the rendering may have been inaccurate. Despite this, they received tips of women who bore a resemblance, also noting similarities with the bedding material. One investigator considered the possibility the bedding originated from Korea. The cause of death could not be determined, although asphyxiation is suspected. Some theorized the pillow found with the remains was used to smother her. However, no blood was found on this item, 
and no signs of trauma were identified. The victim was listed as white or Hispanic. Investigators now believe she was most likely of East Asian descent. They believe she was not likely from Jenkins County or the surrounding region. She may have traveled to the area by ground transport shortly before her death. She may have been accompanied by Johnny Young, though that has not been verified. Investigation In 1991, investigators received a phone call, presumably from Johnny Young, a person of interest in the case since 1988, who confessed to the murder. After he was located in New Jersey, he denied making the phone call. He is now deceased. Young may have been acquainted with a Puerto Rican woman who resembled the initial GBI sketch. Despite the fact the remains were cremated, additional information regarding her age and race could be established if bone fragments still exist. Evidence in the case has been set for additional examination as of 2018. A mysterious John Doe was discovered outside the University of Oregon Med School in 1974. 48 years later, he is still unidentified. Who was he? On February 6, 1974, two park laborers working in the grassy area behind the University of Oregon Medical School in Portland discovered the body of a young white man in an underbrush. He was skeletal and could have been there anywhere between several months and several years. No cause of death could be determined. He was estimated to be in his early 20s and was about 5 foot 7. He wore jeans with a 28-inch waist, a green plaid shirt, and ankle-high job master shoes, and a size 8. His teeth were in excellent condition, and the medical examiner believed his dental work wasn't from Oregon. Over the years, his case hasn't garnered much attention, nor had much info released. You might think a body being outside a university would become an urban legend, but it didn't. He has one rule out per NAM US, and that's Timothy Amoth. A 24-year-old went missing in January 1973 and seemed to line up with this John Doe quite well, but it wasn't him. So who was he? Did he have any ties to the university? How did he end up there? Hannah Truelove was murdered 15 minutes away from my home. She lived in Lake Lanier Club Apartments with her mother. She was a year younger than me. The 16-year-old was found by an out-of-state Vietnam veteran walking in the woods on August 24, 2012. The man thought it was a mannequin that he saw in the woods. Unfortunately, it was the body of Hannah Truelove. He recognized her from a missing persons report. Hannah had been fatally stabbed. An article came out for the 10-year anniversary. I'll now copy and paste from said article. 
Hall County Sheriff's Office investigator Dan Franklin told the Times that there is a suspect, but he feels there is not enough evidence for a conviction. We're confident we know who is responsible for her death, Franklin said. We had a suspect since the beginning, he told the Times. Our issue is that we have a lack of evidence to tie that person to the crime. It's not to say that we have zero evidence, but we just didn't have enough. Though Franklin did not give many details, he said it is a male suspect who Hannah knew before she died. The man has been interviewed twice by law enforcement and has maintained his innocence throughout, Franklin said. As I read this, I'm of course annoyed. Hannah wasn't perfect, but to be stabbed from all the stuff that I've watched, that this was a very personal and brutal way to die. I'll now give you the background from the same 10-year anniversary article. Reported missing. Hannah's mother, Monum Harris, reported her missing at 9.30 p.m., August 23, 2012. Hannah would drop off her stuff in the apartment after school and come out and do what she was doing, which is hang out with her friends in this grassy area up here, Franklin said as he stood in the ravine where Hannah was found. Hannah had not always been good about going to school, and her mother didn't always know where she was, records show. The Division of Family and Children's Services had an open case at the time involving true love and her family. Hannah had been in trouble for truancy, and DFCS had investigated her claims of altercations with her mother related to Harris's drinking, an issue the agency had identified as a risk in the home due to repeated incidents of drunk driving. Just two days prior to her appearance, a case manager had attempted to visit Hannah at home, but Harris couldn't find her according to a DFCS report. But an investigator did meet with the 16-year-old the day she disappeared. According to a DFCS report, a case manager met with True Love at school that August 23rd and said the girl appeared to be fine. They talked about getting her math grade up so that she could go into 11th grade math, according to the report. Hannah was last seen at the apartment off of Dawsonville Highway, now known as MAA Lake Lanier, shortly after 7 p.m. Lack of evidence. The man who found True Love was visiting his daughter in the apartment complex. Liking to take walks in the woods, the man had called the apartment management that week about a manhole cover that was missing where the woods begin. On August 24, 2012, the man decided to walk down the ridge line. The main reason he was walking is to see if the manhole cover had been replaced, Franklin said. A decade later, Franklin walked down the steep hill that leads to where True Love was found. From the spot, one can barely make out the balcony of certain apartments to the trees. The city of Gainesville handled the missing person case and initially responded to the scene. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation was also called to assist. Franklin lauded the city's police's quick response on the missing person aspect with officers calling out Hannah's name at a nearby dock and waking friends up in the apartments. Franklin said there is a line that cuts through the woods that delineates the city from the county, and true love was found just outside the line, putting the case in the county's hands. As Franklin reached the bottom of the hill, he told the Times he is fairly confident that she was killed at the spot where she was found. The area is surrounded by trees and secluded but the apartments are so densely populated that someone would have likely seen or heard something. A witness reported seeing her sitting early that Thursday evening on a wooden staircase that leads down to the trailhead. I think she was led here, or came willingly with the suspect, Franklin said. Though the scene was dry and had grown vegetation, a heavy rain turned into a fast-moving creek. 
Franklin said it rained a few inches in the hours between Thursday night into Friday morning, and True Love was feet first into swift moving water for at least an hour. One of her flip-flops was carried downstream a short distance and caught in a crook of some branches. Her body would have completely submerged in running water, said Franklin, adding that her hair was swept back. The running water washed away a lot of the possible evidence in the case, Franklin said. The lack of evidence has prevented investigators from charging the suspect in True Love's death. Franklin hopes advances in technology will change that. Hannah True Love's death was a wake-up call for me as a teenager. You think you know people. You don't. Her family made a Facebook page for Hannah, and I've seen them grieve. This unfortunate and tragic occurrence will always stick with me. I didn't know her, but I feel like I did. And I hope one day she gets justice for what happened to her. Rest in peace, Hannah. Because this was a different kind of video, I wanted to make it a little bit shorter, kind of like a tester to see if you guys like this style of content. So leave a comment down below and let me know if you enjoyed it. Now, thank you so much to all of our channel members, The Grim Reaper's Nightmare, Tangela Young, Miss Cannabis, Anon Q, Mathematica, Carrie Morris, Christy Goodall, Recovery BMX UK, Cherry, Cheryl Taylor Harris, Lindsay Chavez, Flat Booty Biscuits, West Virginia Angel, Jamie Gavinsk, Shay Shay, Lexi Liu, Xanax Master, Dark Poison, Michelle Dixon, Spike 2021, Patrick F., Corey Maloney, CC's Castle, Charity McVeigh, Tom H., Jess and Dave McDonough, Melissa E. Gandara, Salvador VL, Derek Slank, Randy Music, Brooklyn Ledbetter, Skincrawler, Lisa Thompson, Liz C., Melissa Robinson, Board and Short T., Natasha Strom, Sarah Rodriguez, Melissa Reddy, Kayla Johnston, Skittlebritches, Carlise Van Aswagen, Furberry's Fables, Taryn, Brittany, Said I Would, Inner Scare Wifey, Ruby Wilson, Vanita Tillman, Jennifer Moyer, Bindi and the Ink Machine, Chili, Cutie Patootie, Cappy Karma, Paul Reese, Fiamash K0101, and Honey Pond. Thank you guys so much for being members. I highly appreciate it. And thank you everybody for watching. You have an excellent rest of your night. Enjoy the extra rain. Good night, everybody.
So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 